would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 through 22. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, it is page 1142. Once again, God's holy word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then we do have a catechism lesson as well. Page 24, the back of the Psalter hymnal. We'll read this answer together. Page 24, the back of the Psalter hymnal. Question 45, Lord's Day 17. Remind ourselves of these things as well, beloved. The people of God, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too 
are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before your word as needy people needing for you to plant this word in our hearts, that we may lay it up there and practice it in our lives. So speak powerfully through your word and spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would our faith be without Christ's resurrection and our resurrection? The resurrection makes it all hang together, doesn't it? So do you believe it? Do you believe in the resurrection, in Christ's resurrection and your own resurrection? Do you live your life as if you believe it? Is your life reflective of the truth that because of faith in Jesus Christ, you are now seated with him in the heavenly places? That you are already now raised to a new life? Do you live your life with the confidence that comes in knowing that no matter what happens to your body here in this life and on this earth, by the power of God in Christ, it will be raised to imperishability, made new by the power of God in Jesus Christ. Do you live your life with that confidence? This doctrine makes it all hang together. Our faith and our confidence, the way that we live our lives. It's crucial, central. Illustrating this, it's easy for ministers in modern weddings and even the, the worship ceremony itself to feel almost like an afterthought in the lead up to the wedding day. There's so much to be uh, planned and taken care of, things that need to be arranged, deposits that need to be paid, and logistics that must align. There are plates of food to be sampled, flowers to be chosen, gifts to be bought and given, dresses to be hemmed, and on and on we might go. There's no end, seemingly, to what you might do as it relates to weddings and receptions and parties. And the feeling that you tend to get as it relates to the worship service, the ceremony where they actually get married, is let's briskly move through this so that we can get to the party. But what if you have all of the plans successfully laid out, everything perfectly lined up, and then on the way to the wedding that morning, the minister gets a flat tire and he's stranded and there's no one to go get him. Worse yet, imagine he's flying into town for the wedding, the morning of the wedding, and his plane needs to be rerouted. What all of a sudden is, a, is kind of an afterthought, all of a sudden is a, a crisis. And suppose someone says, well, we don't have the, the, the ceremony but let's just proceed with the rest of the day's plans uh, without the service and without the minister. But of course, what does that mean? That means the couple is not married. And what would that mean? What, what is there then to celebrate if they are not married? The day would be a, a pitiful and jumbled mess of things which lose their meaning if these two people remain unmarried. Uncle Jack's Bad dancing is perhaps excusable in light of a newlywed young couple. But what do we make of it and everything else if the two remain unwed? It, it no longer makes sense. 
the marriage makes it all hang together. The resurrection is that glue that brings everything together in, in God's word, in what we believe, and what we confess, and how we live our lives. Without the resurrection of the body, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is not too much to say that all would be lost in our faith. And our gathering here today, our wonderful singing, the resounding song that makes our heart resonate with joy and gladness, it would be pitiful if Christ were not raised. It'd be a jumbled mess of lies and half-truths. But since we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, it makes our celebration, it makes our worship, it makes even an Easter feast make sense because we are on our way to the true and the everlasting feast and the confidence that will be read about in Isaiah 25. God has prepared, he is preparing that for us and has prepared it for us and that is where we are going. The end of the story is there on the mountain of God with all of his people, raised to new life. So since the resurrection is certain, and since the resurrection is central, are you, people of God, truly convinced of it? And do you live with the conviction that it is true? It's certain and it's central. Thus, are you convinced of it? And do you live with the conviction that it is true? First, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the historical certainty the certainty of this resurrection. Christ's and ours, which is two episodes of the same event. You see how closely interwoven they are. But if it is central, it first must be true. It must be certain. And here we find that put on display by the power of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. That's not to say that it does not take faith to embrace the risen Lord in the gospel. But it is to say that the Christ of our faith entered history and accomplished salvation before the eyes of the world. There were those who beheld the risen Christ with human eyes. It's an amazing thing to think about, even though we confess it each and every week. The gospel is historical, but it's his historical doctrine. That's what it means for us. Paul preached a gospel. What does that word mean? It means good news. What is news? It's things that have happened in history. Uh, my oldest daughter illustrated this uh, a few years ago when she was kind of going through the, the, the preschool Easter lessons that week. And I came home one day and she goes, Daddy, did you hear the news? Did you hear the news that there were some bad guys that captured Jesus? They, they put him on the cross, but now he's, he's been raised again and he's alive. And you see the, the eyes of a young child light up when they realize this is news. This is something that has happened. My second daughter illustrated the same thing this week. I came home and she said, Daddy, did you hear? There were bad guys that captured Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head. There's something that happens in the the mind of a, of a young child in a Christian family, a covenant child, when they realize that these are not made-up stories. These are real, and that's what we confess week after week and to our covenant kids and to all of us. When we say the creed, we're, we're saying this happened, crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. This is an historical event. We confess it, and it's truly good news, isn't it? Because there is where we find our salvation. So Paul says, I want to remind you of this gospel. He reminds them because apparently many of them are in danger of forgetting it and forfeiting it. It's an utterly shocking notion, isn't it? What, what a doctrine to consider leaving by the wayside, the resurrection of the dead. And that seems to be what, 
what we have here. It's a, it's a sobering reminder, too, how fickle we are that we would forget or we would fail to live in light of, really, the glue of the Christian faith and something that is so, so blessed and so glorious that it is what animates a true Christian life. Christ is risen and we will be raised. Perhaps our forgetfulness is seen in various things. Our forgetfulness of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ, may be seen in patterns of sin. We allow patterns of sin in our lives to develop. And that shows that we don't really understand the weight of sin. We don't really understand the weight of Christ's payment for sin on the cross for us. We don't understand the the power and the meaning of his resurrection for sinners. We need to be reminded of the gospel. Perhaps the forgetfulness is more like what they were having here in Corinth, that false teaching is is creeping in and grabbing hold of of some people, saying there is no resurrection, or perhaps it it has already happened. It's some kind of spiritual or uh, different kind of secret resurrection. They've drifted from what the gospel very clearly says. Paul says these are first principles. This is of first importance. If you grasp anything, you must grasp this, what Jesus Christ has done. And you think, Paul must have been so utterly frustrated to bring the good news, the best news to the people as news. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is the Lord and Savior of the world. Place your trust in him. Repent of your sins. You will live forever. You will be raised again. And then to see them drift from that or to begin to forget that, how utterly frustrating. But again, how fickle we are. Why? What do we conclude from this? We need the gospel. We need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it. We need to take joy in it. We need to treasure this good news. Lord's day after Lord's day, day after day, hour by hour. We need to live ever in light of it. And to rejoice and to never tire of hearing that Christ died and was risen. That ought to ring in your ear as a Christian every day. And you want to take joy in it each and every day. This good news has been accomplished in accordance with the scriptures. It's exactly as God has planned it. It adds weight to the certainty of it, doesn't it? God said it would happen this way. And this is how it unfolded. On Friday, we read Isaiah 53. Very clear prophecy of the suffering servant and what he was going to endure. There are other things too. The the day of atonement, the temple and uh, the tabernacle, the whole system of sacrifices leading us to see that Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The the ram in the thicket of Genesis 22. the, The animal skins that God makes for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All of these things pointing us to these truths of Jesus Christ. The burial and the resurrection as well. In Isaiah 53, there's this exaltation of the suffering servant. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. In the midst of all of these prophecies of the suffering he's going to endure, the life that will be taken from him, what will he do? He will endure. He will see his offspring. He will be exalted. The sign of Jonah telling us of the resurrection. And on and on we might go. But he says it's in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with God's plan. It adds weight to the certainty. We also have the eyewitness accounts and the apostolic witness. There are those who are living who have seen the risen Christ. And thus that is what they declared. Particularly the apostles. 
J. Gresham Machen says, the great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was an historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, he is risen. They did not go out into the world hoping to convince people of the five metaphysical truths of kind of very scholastic kinds of things. It was a, a message. He is risen. And your sins in which you live can be cleansed. The apostles there bore witness to it, and they all had that apostolic qualification of encountering the risen Christ. And Paul says, I, I, I had this as well. I saw the risen Christ. He came to me. It was violent and it was sudden, he says, as to one untimely born. His entrance into, into the office of apostle was violent. It was sudden. It was unexpected. It was stark from a, a life of persecution to a life of utter service. Paul worked himself to the bone, didn't he, for Jesus Christ. It was a, a violent and unnatural entrance, an untimely birth, one that comes unexpectedly quickly perhaps, Spring is the time of our birthdays in the house of our children, so we're reminded of birth stories. One of our, one of our kids, uh, most of them were very kind of slow, gradual, nice and easy labor. One of them was this violent and sudden thing, right? We go to the hospital and the doctor says, yeah, you know, probably 12 hours from now, something like that. An hour later, we're holding the baby. Didn't have time to get the proper medicine or anything like that. I'm okay, thank you. But you hold that baby in that, those, that whirlwind of a few minutes and you're profoundly humble and profoundly grateful because you say this was so out of our hands. And you thank the Lord, you thank the, the, the doctors and the nurses who were there for you. That was Paul. His, his, life, his life change was so stark, it was so sudden, violent, profoundly humble, profoundly grateful. And profoundly energized to serve the Lord. In what ways do you look into your life and, to, and you see the grace of God that has worked in your heart and changed your life in ways that makes you profoundly humble, profoundly grateful, and energized to serve the Lord? It doesn't have to be a story like Paul's. If any of us look inward, we see the depths of what God has saved us from. We see the change that he has wrought in us and that he continues to bring about in us. Are you brimming with energy to serve the Lord because of your gratitude and your humility at the grace of God? So this, is, this adds weight to the certainty as well, the eyewitnesses, the apostolic witnesses. So the gospel is now to be proclaimed. It's the avenue to belief. Whether it was I or they, he says in verse 11, so we preach and so you believed. Sometimes you hear that preach the gospel, use words when necessary or use words if necessary. Supposedly St. Francis of Assisi said that. I heard a, 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 an improved version of that. I think it was Harry Reader. He said this, preach the gospel, use words, they are necessary. There's a proclamation that needs to go forth because no matter how well we live our lives, no matter how wonderfully and perhaps faithfully we live our lives as God's people, the message of Jesus Christ must be declared. The news must be spread and brought to the very ends of the earth. What our lives for, are for, the lives to which we are called, they perhaps lend weight 
to the gospel, lent credibility to the gospel as we lay down our lives willingly for, uh, for others and for Christ. It impresses upon an unbelieving world that we truly believe in the resurrection of the dead. Think of the ways that Christians have responded in, in plague time, ministering to the sick and the afflicted in the confidence that they will be raised to new life. You see the, the confidence with which they went to their death and died martyrs' deaths in confidence because they knew that their Lord had been risen from the dead. It transformed this band of mourners, as Machen goes on to say, into spiritual conquerors of the world. He is risen. It begins with that proclamation. It's the avenue to believe. So we preach and so you believed. How are they to believe unless they hear? Unless they hear the preaching of the word. So it is certain. Do you live in the certainty of this resurrection? And more importantly, convinced of its certainty, its historical certainty, do you then take the next step to trust in this Jesus? To trust that he has lived and died and has been raised for your salvation and that it is brought home to you. It's certain and then, of course, it is, it is central. It is central. Exactly what happened to Jesus of Nazareth will happen to all who are his. What he has won and what was seen with human eyes will be a blessing known by all believers from every age and in every corner of the world on the last day. Our bodies will be raised like his. There's an organic unity to the resurrection such that you think about it as one harvest. He is the first fruits and we are yet to come. But that does not mean we are part of a different harvest. This is two episodes of the same event. Paul works backwards and forwards in that middle passage, doesn't he? If we are not raised, Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, we are not raised. They are inseparable. He's assuming, of course, that Christ has been raised. Having asserted that, thus ours will be raised as well. The question here for the doubters in Corinth is not so much whether Jesus rose from the dead seemingly, but what that means for us. Has it already happened? Does it really come to, to, to bear upon us? Paul says, you cannot think about it that way. They are so closely interwoven. They are two episodes of the same event. If we are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Amazing thing to say, isn't it? Then he begins to explore the, the pitiful absurdity of a non-resurrected Christ. What if there were no resurrection of the dead? What if there were no, then, no resurrection of Christ? Well, then the Christian faith is in vain. The curse of Eden still remains. Our greatest enemy still holds sway, doesn't he? The proclamation of the gospel is sinful and misleading. It breaks the, the, the first and the second commandments. It breaks the ninth commandment. It misleads people into something that, which is not the truth. The truth must lie elsewhere if Jesus Christ is not the truth. So it leads people into false worship. Then we would still be in our sins. Dead, uh, those who have died in the Lord will have perished eternally. They're without hope. We are without hope for them. Salvation and eternal life would be nothing if it was not finished with Christ being raised and finishing the work. See, all of the Bible, it's as if it brings us to the precipice of the heavenly Canaan 
We see in the scriptures the existence of God, the being of God, his wonderful attributes that he has made us for himself, that we were made to serve and love and worship God. The commandments let us know who may ascend the holy hill of the Lord. And it's as if we come up on the precipice and we're looking out upon the heavenly Canaan and the Jordan River is between us and that blessed land. And we understand and realize that unless a man of earth becomes the man of heaven, unless he goes through and crosses over the Jordan, we will ever remain on this side. We needed someone to cross the Jordan and emerge victorious. Unless there is someone who does that, who overcomes death itself, we would ever look out on that blessed land filled with despair, knowing that we cannot ourselves cross over. So there's a, there's a pity to this, the Christian faith without the resurrection. Why does Paul say we are to be, of, most, of all people, most pitied? Well, we may say several things, but you probably could, could boil it down to basically suffering and sacrifice. Suffering and sacrifice. All people in this world suffer in many ways. To, to live under the curse is difficult enough. And it's as if Paul is saying, why would you welcome more suffering in the name of Jesus Christ? To bear Jesus Christ, to bear his name as a Christian in, in this world usually means hardship and difficulty outward, externally. And for all people, it means that you go to war against the world and the flesh and the devil and to welcome unto yourself a, a difficult battle that you live each and every day seeking to put your sin and your flesh to death. Suffering and then sacrifice. Christians do enjoy many wonderful blessings in this world and we're very, very thankful when they do come our way. But as God's people, we must decide how to use gifts and blessings for Christ first and not ourselves. To sacrifice some blessing in your life, you ought to be saying, how do I use this for God and his glory? It's not to be spent on yourselves. And so, Paul says, of all people, we are to be most pitied if it were not true. To quote Machen one more time, he says, if you reject the Bible, particularly if you reject the fact of the resurrection, you have a jumble of meaningless and, de and detached bits of information. You see, it's the glue that holds it all together. It's quite the phrase, a jumble of meaningless and detached bits of information. You're tempted to say it's something like a political speech you might hear these days. Jumbled, meaningless, detached bits of information floating around in our imagination. It makes it all hang together. But then as we bring this to a close this morning, don't, for, don't miss that hidden comfort that we have there. If he has not been raised, what does that mean? You would still be in your sins. So don't miss that hidden yet glorious comfort. Since he has been raised, you are not still in your sins. We as Reformed Christians focus on the cross, the death of Christ, because there we find that the price was paid. And it's a glorious truth, isn't it? We glory in the cross, in my place, condemned he stood. But what is the resurrection? The, re the resurrection is that, uh, that display that it has been paid, the wrath has been satisfied, and new life emerges forth from it. Matthew Henry says this, His resurrection, Christ's resurrection, demonstrates that the Father accepts his death in full discharge for our ransom. It would be something like, 
uh, paying the last, cutting the last check for a loan of some kind. Let's say a student loan. Let's say there's a, a Reformed and Presbyterian pastor lives somewhere, I don't know, we'll say South Holland. Let's say recently he had a, uh, one last bill to pay for one of his student loans. Let's say it was any amount, I don't know, let's just say it was like $182.17, something like that. Who knows? And you cut that last check to one of those loans that allowed you to go to an, an extremely expensive college. You, you cut that last check, that's a good feeling. The price has been paid. But then a couple weeks later, there's this, this whole new experience that perhaps I wasn't anticipating. And my lender sends me a letter that says, congratulations, the loan has been paid in full. And all of a sudden, I'm kind of bouncing around, going in the, living in the, the, the light of this newfound freedom that I have, recognized by the lender. This world, this universe, God himself, the full discharge of the debt is recognized. He is declared to be the Son of God, and he was raised for our justification. Do not miss this. Because he has been raised, you are not still in your sins. That gives us confidence in our forgiveness. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Jesus defeats sin and death. He silences the voice of the law so that we know we are released. What sin seeks to do, it can no longer do to us. So this changes the way that we view death, doesn't it? We talked about this on Friday night. Why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins. Isn't that a glorious and wonderful thing? but only a dying to sin and an entering into eternal life. As by a man came death, so also by a man comes the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So, brothers and sisters, have you secured your interest in Christ? Not only to live in, in the certainty that this resurrection has happened historically, but to live in the confidence that he is your Savior to exercise faith and trust in him, and to repent of the sins that you have committed? Have you secured your interest in Christ, and then do you live in the conviction knowing that this is true, and is your life shaped by it? So two things. If the resurrection is true, and if we are confident that it's true, that we will share in that resurrection, Christ is the first fruits. So then first, are, are we using our bodies and our health in service to God? Do we sacrifice what we have now in confidence of what is yet to come? John Flavel says this, How many have healthy and vigorous bodies and use them so little in service of God? If your bodies were animated by souls more zealous, more work might be done in one day than is presently done in one month. The point here is that you need not be worried about preserving your body, for that is left up to God who will raise us up to glory. Think of Jesus, beaten, tattered, torn to shreds, enters into his glory. Think of Paul, starving, emaciated various times, probably died a terrible wretch of a man the way he looked outwardly. Think of the glory, though the body wastes away, Inner, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So do you use your strength, your health, your vigor, your blessings for Christ and his kingdom in the confidence that he will raise you to new life? Are you using your body in service to him? And then secondly, 
Are you preserving your body in holiness, knowing that you have been raised to new life? Right? Our hope is not only future, we are already, Ephesians 2, seated with him in the heavenly places. And Colossians 3 teases that out. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above and put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If you have been raised with Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And heaven is a place of holiness. And thus, are you preserving yourself in that holiness for which God has made you and remade you? Are you laying down your life, saying, not I, but Christ in me? Are you putting to death the sinful flesh that seeks to wage war upon you? Are you understanding that since I have been raised with Christ, I have a heavenly existence now to live out? One author puts it this way. When we meet someone who says, no longer I, but Christ in me, we are like Mary and the other women on that bright morning. We become witnesses to a rising from the dead. When someone says, not I, but Christ in me, they are becoming witnesses, and you become a witness as you say that to the resurrection of the dead, saying, this resurrection life is present in me that allows me to live in the confidence knowing that I'm a citizen of heaven because my risen Lord has raised me to new life. We're going to a feast. We're going to a feast. That is the end. That is the end goal. This life, thankfully, is not a vicious circle. Not this unending sort of again and again and again. We're going somewhere. The resurrection gives us a goal and an end. That same author goes on to say this, Wayfaring Christian, if someone asks you where you are going, reply, I'm going to a feast. So is the rest of the church. Where else should we go? It's the morning of Easter. That's where we're going. So you feast today. Maybe, you, maybe you're going to a feast probably ham. And as you go there, and, you, you, and by the way, you read Isaiah 25, what kind of a feast is that? That's a steak feast, right? That's not a ham or a turkey feast. That's a steak feast. And Isaiah 25, not that I'm, you know, tipping the hand as to what I think our feast should be here. But you go to a feast today, you remind yourself, I'm on the journey to the last feast, the real one that God has made for me. And I can live in the confidence, the conviction that Jesus Christ, because he has been, been raised, will raise me to new life. I'm on my way there, walking in the confidence that this resurrection is central, convicted of its truth, allowing my life to be shaped by it. May it be said of each and every one of us. Let's pray.